Uh, if you would, join me in turning to Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading from verses 9 through 25 as we continue in uh, our series to the book of Acts. Uh, we've looked at this major turning point beginning in uh, Acts chapter 7 and, and 8 with the, the death of Stephen and the expansion uh, of the church from Jerusalem into non-Jewish areas, into Samaria. Uh, and so we've kind of parked the car at this part, uh, uh, focusing on the ministry uh, in Samaria. Uh, let's, if you're able, let's stand together as we read from God's Word, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. I'll be using the ESV translation. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, when they believed Philip as he preached good news, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for, they had, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? We pray that the same spirit who led Luke to record these events would open our eyes, illumine our hearts and minds, that we would receive your word with faith and love, that we would lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Lord, we pray that in all things we would see Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Since uh, 1997, uh, PBS has been airing a show called Antiques Roadshow. Probably many of you have seen this show. Some of you may be aficionados of this great show. The idea of the show is that the, the crew kind of travels around to different cities across the U.S. and they, they set up shop in these areas where people can bring 
things that they find around their houses, maybe junk that's in their attic or things that their family has handed down over years. And they, they bring it to the Antiques Roadshow, and the Roadshow has all of these experts, all of these antique experts uh, who focus on different kind of uh, uh, areas of expertise to evaluate the things that people bring in, to see if, is this trash or is this treasure? Is this uh, invaluable or does it have no value at all? And so people bring in all kinds of things. Sometimes I watch it and I wonder if somebody just you know, thought, oh, the Antiques Roadshow was coming. They open their drawer and just grab whatever's there and take it because the, the types of things people bring is often humorous. On occasion, though, uh, somebody will bring something in that's exceptionally valuable and they had no idea. Just something their aunt had passed down and they kept it because it was of sentimental value. And then they bring it in and lo and behold, it's worth tens of thousands or maybe more uh, in its value. And they're astonished. But then other times you have people bring in something that they think is immensely valuable. And it turns out to be completely fraudulent. I was watching an episode where a man had two portraits uh, portraits of individuals who appeared to be kind of well-known people from colonial America. Uh, they looked very authentic. They looked old. The, the, you know, the paintings themselves, the clothing that the people were wearing in the paintings, it all appeared to be authentic to the time period. The man had paid $6,000 for these, painted, uh, these paintings and wanted them to be appraised on the Antiques Roadshow. So they brought out the expert. The expert looked it over, and uh, of course they do a little bit of research off camera, and he came back and he began to point out the things on this painting that indicated that it was a complete fake. He pointed out that the material was all wrong. The back of the canvas was clearly not old enough to belong to the 18th century. The frame that the painting was mounted on seemed to be the original frame, and it was clearly not new material. But then finally, the expert said that the main reason he knew that these paintings were not the real thing is because he had actually seen the real paintings that these were uh, imitations of. They were in some museum somewhere. And he said, I know these aren't the originals because the originals are in a museum somewhere else. This guy paid $6,000 for a complete counterfeit. It looked good, but it wasn't the real thing. And it took an expert to know the difference. In our passage this morning... Uh, Luke is presenting us uh, with a living picture of false faith, of a counterfeit type of faith, in contrast with true faith, to help us to see the difference between the real thing and an imitation. He shows us this living picture through Philip's ministry in Samaria, and particularly his interaction with this man named Simon the Magician. And in the course of this story, he not only presents to us a contrast between living, true, authentic faith in the gospel and false faith, but he also shows us implicitly the greatness of the Savior in whom we put our faith in the first place. Let's set the stage a little bit and then look at how Luke unfolds this living picture of false faith for us. You'll recall that as a result of the persecution against Stephen in Jerusalem after Stephen's death, the believers are scattered. They, they go out from Jerusalem into the surrounding region, and many of them, including Philip, one of the early deacons, lands in Samaria. As they're there, they are proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus Christ, 
And there is a conversion among many of the Samaritans there. Our passage this morning kind of zooms in on those uh, on that conversion on Philip's preaching and, and what happened as a result of it, uh, and in particular lays out the details of Philip's interaction with a man named Simon. Luke tells us that this man has been there for quite a while. He's, he's previously practiced magic uh, in the area of Samaria, and, and everybody kind of knows who he is. He's, he's got some influence. He's got some standing uh, in this area. And he has some powerful influence over the people as well, uh, so that in a sense, there's almost a competition set up between Simon, his magic, uh, and the good news of Jesus that is being proclaimed among the Samaritans. With that background in mind, uh, we see kind of three questions raised in this text that we'll try to work through. The first is, what do we do with Jesus? What does true faith do with Jesus? Is he number one, central, or is he kind of an ornament sought after simply for the benefits that he may give? Second question is, how do you get favor from God? How does, how does true faith receive favor from God rather than false faith? And then finally, we want to ask what true repentance looks like. How does true faith demonstrate itself in true repentance? And so let's look first at the difference between true faith and false faith as it relates to Jesus. We see in the passage that true faith exalts Jesus while false faith exalts the self. Notice the, the description of Simon. As Philip comes into Samaria and begins preaching the gospel, Luke backs up in verse 9 and tells us that there's a man there named Simon. We know several things about him. He's established himself in this region. As we pointed out, he's been practicing magic there. Uh, he is a magician. Now, it's important to understand what this means in the book of Acts and what it doesn't mean. When, when the Bible talks about a magician, it's not talking about a guy who shows up and pulls a rabbit out of his hat and impresses people with you know, sleight of hand and, and uh, optical illusions. This is no uh, card trick going on here. What's happening and Simon, as he's a magician, is he is a sorcerer. He is one who is in touch with probably demonic powers, some sort of supernatural power going on here. Uh, it is an idolatrous form of magic. And he has exerted an impressive amount of influence over the people in this region, even uh, claiming things about himself, that he is somebody great, He's amazed people with his magical gifts, with his sorcery, so that even not only is he claiming to be somebody great, but others are saying he is the great power of God. Almost messianic claims are being attributed to Simon. He is exalting himself with his power. Jews, uh, you may recall, are, were strictly forbidden in the Old Testament from interacting with sorcery, interacting with rich uh, witchcraft, which here is another strike against the Samaritans as far as the Jews are concerned. He had people's attention. Luke tells us two times they were paying close attention to him. He tells us two times that they were amazed by the things that he was doing. Simon has exalted himself. He is aiming to attract people to himself through his amazing acts of magic. 
But then as you notice the contrast uh, with Philip, notice what stands out with Philip. How is Philip described as he's come into Samaria? Look at verse 12. People believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. All of Philip's focus is directed away from himself toward Jesus. He's not proclaiming Philip and Philip's power. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. All focus is directed toward who Jesus is and what he has done in the gospel. As people respond to Philip, they're not attaching themselves to him. They're attaching themselves to Jesus, being baptized as they receive the good news. They are identified with Christ in their baptism. All focus is directed toward Jesus. At the heart of genuine faith, the heart of true faith, we see is the person and work of Jesus. For Simon, this was displaced by a desire for power, manipulation, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but often for us, we, we too frequently displace Jesus from the central place that he ought to occupy in the gospel and in our lives. We often focus, instead of focusing on what Jesus has done for us, we often focus on our own morality, our own view that we must do good in order to earn our favor with God. We focus on our own moral strength rather than looking to Jesus as the one whom we need for righteousness. Sometimes Jesus is displaced by a focus on self-fulfillment, thinking that somehow Jesus' purpose is to make us feel good about ourselves, that that is the goal of what God does for all of us, that he is somehow our cosmic therapist or divine butler whose sole purpose is to make us feel good. So there's a focus on self-fulfillment rather than on Jesus. Oftentimes there's simply a focus on felt needs, thinking that Jesus' sole purpose is to meet our expectations or meet our desires. And yet Jesus turns these idols over in our hearts. Through his cross and resurrection, we see that the focus of the gospel is not our ability to do good, but our inability to do good. And our deep need for Christ to be our righteousness, to fly to Jesus, to see that in him we have a righteousness from God, not based on what we have done, but solely based on the gift of God in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Through his cross and resurrection, Jesus calls us not to self-fulfillment, as we might define it, but rather to self-denial. Any man who follows Jesus, he says, must take up his cross and follow him each day. Not only that, but Jesus calls us as the risen Lord to submit our lives to him, not simply seeking our felt needs to be met, but submitting all that we have and all that we are to him as the risen and exalted Lord. We often displace Jesus from the centrality that he holds in the gospel and in our faith. True faith exalts Jesus. False faith exalts self. And we see that Simon exhibited some kind of faith. Along with the other Samaritans, we're told Simon himself, seeing all the signs that were going on, Simon himself, we're told in verse 13, believed and even was baptized and continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed. Now no longer was he amazing, the Samaritans, but he himself was amazed at the power displayed 
uh, through Philip. And yet we see that there's something not quite right about Simon's demonstration of faith. He still seems to have some of this worldview of magic dominating his life. Uh, We see this in particular in his response to the apostles coming to Samaria, laying their hands upon the believers there, and they're receiving the Holy, Holy Spirit through this work of the apostles. We see in Simon that false faith seeks manipulation and power rather than receiving grace as a gift from God. Notice in verse 14, there's this kind of background context to what's about to happen with Simon. Verse 14, we're told that the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, the church in Jerusalem, hears about the gospel coming to Samaria, hears about these Samaritans believing the gospel, receiving the word of the Lord, and they send Peter and John. And the reason they send Peter and John, we're told, is that the believers in Samaria had not yet received the Holy Spirit. He had not yet come upon them. They'd been baptized uh, into the name of Jesus. They had received Jesus by faith, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John come down. Uh, They lay their hands on the believers, and through the prayer of these apostles, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's important. It's not not the main point of the text, but it's important to try to understand what's what's going on here. Uh, and, And we won't go into Uh, immense amount of detail, uh, but suffice it to say that part of what Peter and John are doing here as they come to Samaria is that they are confirming the work of God among this non-Jewish population, the Samaritans. You'll remember from last week that this is is the first time that the gospel has gone outside of uh, a Jewish region. It's gone outside of Judea into Samaria. And because of who the Samaritans were, their kind of heretical views of the Bible and of the Messiah, there is this need for confirmation uh, through the hands of the apostles and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit through that to confirm that the Samaritans have been indeed brought into the one people of God. Another way to think about this is uh, some people will say that this is kind of a second blessing and that this ought to be the norm for the Christian life, that you come to faith in Jesus, you're baptized, and then perhaps later you might receive this extra second blessing of having the Holy Spirit being poured out upon you. And it's just important to note that that's not what Luke is presenting to us here in the book of Acts as the norm for the Christian life. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. There's no need for some later second blessing or somebody to come pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon you. This is a unique, uh, as we've said, non-repeatable event as the gospel begins this first stage of advance for the first time out of Jewish territory here into Samaritan territory. The apostles came to confirm the unity of God's people, that the Samaritans were indeed part of the church because they belonged to Jesus. The main thing to know for our purposes is that Simon sees this. He sees the apostles coming. He sees them laying their hands on believers in Samaria, and he sees, whatever he sees, we're not sure, but he sees in some way the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Samaritans. And notice his response to this demonstration of spiritual power as he sees this. Verse 18, 
Simon saw that the Spirit was given. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice, Simon does not ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon him as well. He wants the power. He wants the ability that he sees displayed in the apostles for himself. And so he offers the only thing he knows to offer. He offers them money to purchase this power. Simon seems to be viewing this almost like we might view a rabbit's foot. I don't know if anybody carries rabbit's feet, foots, whatever, rabbit, you know, I don't know if anybody carries those around uh, anymore, but I remember when I was in school, every once in a while some kid would show up with our, our rabbit's, his lucky rabbit's foot, and he'd pull it out and he'd start rubbing it before a test or you know, whatever the case may be. Some, sometimes we kind of view God like that, that, that somehow if I do certain things, then I'll have some good measure of luck and things will go my way as long as I can kind of check the boxes, rub the rabbit's foot, um, uh, there's all kinds of things people do. If any of you watch tennis and you know uh, the, one of the best tennis players around today, Rafael Nadal, if you watched him play tennis, every time there's a service about to start, he has about 20 things that he does as he's behind the baseline. He grabs his ears, he grabs his nose, he wipes his sweat, does all kinds of stuff every single time. We, sometimes we view God that way that I've got to do all of these things for things to go right. And it's really uh, just a different form of what we might call manipulation. And, and this is really kind of at the heart of this contrast between Simon the magician and the good news of Jesus. Magic, sorcery, was aimed at manipulation, seeking power, human power, over God. Uh, through supernatural means, through demonic influence, whatever the case may be. And this is why in the Old Testament, sorcery, witchcraft, and the like is all condemned so strongly because it is so antithetical to the grace of God. The, the Bible, the religion of the Bible, the Christian faith is a faith of revelation from God to man. It's a faith about the gift of God in Jesus Christ freely given to man, and the, the worldview of sorcery, the worldview of magic is all about what I do to manipulate God to get him in my pocket so that he will do what I want him to do, so that I will have power. Simon is still, even with whatever kind of faith he's professing, Simon is still dominated by that worldview of manipulation and power. He wants what he sees in the apostles, and so he offers them money so that he can control, so that he can manipulate the gods, so that he can have power over others. And yet it goes smack in the face of the worldview of grace that we see in the gospel, a worldview centered on who God is, that he is great, that, that he is powerful, that he is sovereign over all things, and we are completely dependent upon him. And what's needed to receive that grace from God is not money. You know, money can't buy you love. Money can't buy you the grace of God. It's not manipulation and seeking power over God. 
What's required, rather, is humility and repentance. Jack Miller, uh, in his book, Repentance in the 20th Century Man, talks about how grace flows downhill. It always comes to those who are lowly in spirit, those who are broken over their sin, those who see their need for forgiveness and recognize that it can only come by receiving it as a gift from God. Simon mistook this power as something that he could control rather than something he was to submit to in faith. And Peter uh, rebukes him with, with strong language. Notice verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. It doesn't quite capture the severity of Peter's words to Simon. Uh, in uh, in J.B. Phillips' translation, he says... May your money go to hell with you. It's a curse that Peter is pronouncing on Simon. You think you can obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish. May it be cursed along with you. If this is what you think, if this is how you think you should approach God, it's a serious rebuke. And yet even in that rebuke, Peter calls him to repentance. Repent, therefore, in verse 22, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon sought manipulation and power. True faith receives grace as a gift from God, acknowledging our need in the provision of grace in the gospel of Jesus, that he has done all things necessary for salvation, and we receive it as a gift, not something that is earned. But even as Peter called Simon to repentance, uh, it's, it's not entirely clear, but it does not seem that Simon responds to this with true repentance. And so we see in some ways that false faith produces regret and self-pity, while true faith turns toward the heart toward God in repentance. Peter offers this warning, this stern rebuke, and he offers a way out for Simon that he should repent. And seek the Lord's forgiveness for the intent of his heart. But notice Simon's answer in verse 24. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon doesn't take the offer, it seems. Uh, He doesn't appear to repent of, of what he has done, but rather has some regret. I don't, the things that you're saying sound really bad. I don't want that to happen to me. You pray for me so that that doesn't happen to me. But there doesn't seem to be any genuine repentance, grief over his own sin. There seems to be a grief over what might happen to him as a result of his sin. It's a false repentance, and it doesn't uh, exhibit genuine faith. Peter points out, though, that true repentance is a matter of the heart, a matter of the intentions of the heart, not just the actions, but what's going on on the inside turning our hearts away from sin and toward Christ in faith. It's kind of the difference between uh, patching up cracks on a foundation wall at a house and actually redoing the foundation itself. We lived in a house for a little while when we bought it. It had a, and we still live in a house, but the the other house that we lived in for a little while, uh, when we bought it, it had cracks uh, on on the foundation wall. And so the inspector said, well, that's not going to pass muster. You've got you've to fix that. 
Uh, and it, it turned out that what was required to fix it was way more than, than we could afford at that time. They were going to have to jack the house up, and redo the foundation underneath the foundation wall. And so we said, is there anything else we can do? So yeah, we'll get some guys to come in and just patch up, patch up the cracks. Well, that worked for a while, but it didn't address the core problem of the, with the foundation. After a little while, after a little more rain and so forth, uh, the cracks came back because we had not dealt with the core problem. In many ways, uh, we treat repentance like we would treat covering up the cracks in the foundation wall. We just need a little mortar to cover over our bad actions. We just need something on the outside. And yet the call to repentance uh, is a call to turn the heart away from sin and toward God as he has revealed his grace in Jesus Christ and to embrace that in faith. It is a whole life turning away from sin and toward Christ. But Simon deflects. There's regret, but it's not from the heart. You pray for me. I don't want these things to happen, but he does not act on them himself by going to God in repentance. True faith turns the heart toward God in repentance. It's much like the difference between the prodigal son and his older brother. The prodigal son, as you know, takes his part, his part of the inheritance from his father, goes off, wastes it, uh, gets himself in the lowest of lows and uh, comes to himself, realizes that he has squandered all the gifts that he had from his father and desires to come back. But on his way back, he comes up with this speech. You know, I've sinned against you and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as a servant in your house. And as he gets a little bit closer, the father sees him from a distance runs towards him, embraces him, and the prodigal son begins his speech, but he only gets so far as to say, I have sinned against you and in your sight. And the father embraces him, kisses him, welcomes him back, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, brings out the fattened calf, and they celebrate because the son was once dead and now is alive. He was once lost and now has been found. That son experienced repentance. He recognized his unworthiness. He came back with a, a hope. He didn't know, but he came back with a hope that the father would receive him. Even if he just received him as a servant, that would be far better than what he had experienced. But he had come to his senses. He'd recognized his sin against his father and desired to come back. And the father embraced him and welcomed him in. Meanwhile, the older son, the older brother, looks at the situation and what's his response? He's angry. All this time, I've been here with you. All this time, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. Where's my fattened calf? Where's my celebration? The younger son, the prodigal, recognized that his relationship to his father uh, could not be based on his fulfillment of all of his responsibilities. He couldn't be good enough. He had, he had wasted that as he went off and spent his inheritance. He came back hat in hand. Uh, repentant over his sin. But the older brothers thought that the relationship was based on merit, based on what he had done. And so there was no true repentance in that case. True faith demonstrates itself in repentance, seeing sin for what it is, turning from sin, and embracing the free offer of mercy in the gospel. As we see this picture of false faith, it calls, uh, calls us to consider our own hearts, 
The Bible, you know, is like a mirror. We hold it up to our lives and we see uh, where we fall short and we see offered to us the mercy of God in Jesus, even as we see our sin. But this passage ought to push us to ask, where is Jesus in your life? What place does he occupy in, in your heart? Is he displaced by some other thing, whether it's yourself or some desire? Or does he occupy the central place in your life through faith in his name? Do you see your need for the deep grace of God in Jesus Christ? Or do you think that your contribution is needed? Some good work, some extra bit of sorrow or regret? Or do you believe and see that in Jesus we have all that we need? His perfect righteousness his death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead. We have all that we need in Jesus. And finally, are you walking in repentance? Are you grieving over your own sin in such a way that it drives you to Christ and to the mercy of God in him? You see, repentance is not just about kind of low-level simmering guilt all the time. True repentance drives us to the cross to see that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven, that we have a certain hope that there is forgiveness for our sins because Christ has come and done all things necessary for our salvation. And so repentance is not just turning from our sin and hoping for the best. It's faithfully embracing what God has done for us in the gospel and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. What might that look like? What might true repentance look like in your life? a distaste for sin, a deeper grief over your sin, a quickness to confess and to ask for forgiveness, and a trajectory of change over time as you seek to follow Christ and walk in repentance and faith, turning away from sin and turning to God with a growing delight in Christ, a love for the people of God, a love for holiness in a deeper assurance that God's love is yours in Christ. As we see this false picture of faith displayed in Simon the Magician, uh, may we examine our own lives, may we examine our own faith, and may we run to Jesus in faith.